0: Okay, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter eight. We're actually going to be working our way through Revelation eight six all the way through nine twenty one. If you're new here, you just stepped into Revelation, so <laughs> welcome. Uh, the way we're handling the Book of Revelation is uh, you know, Revelation is essentially uh, a collection of interconnected visions that give a particular understanding of the Church Age from. Jesus perspective, right? And so we're trying to take these one vision at a time, roughly, or at least as each uh, section of Revelation allows us to. So today we're covering a vision, right? And um, there's a lot of material, so we're going to be working our way somewhat quickly through it. So try to, try to, try to keep up and just know that um, there's a whole lot more to mine out of this passage if you want to go deeper. So we would encourage you to do that. And uh, if you're looking for resources, please contact the church office. We're glad you point, you point you in the right direction. However, let me just say on the front end, uh, by way of encouragement, hopefully this is an encouragement, that um, hard words build strong minds and strong hearts. Uh, you're going to hear some hard words today, hard words from Revelation and from me as I try to make sense of the book of Revelation. So they're not easy words. Some words are easy. Some words are sugary sweet. They're just kind of nice. They go down easy. Others are hard. These are hard words. So just know that these are the kinds of words and doctrines that allow us to build a stable foundation for our faith from which we will not be moved. We just go where the Bible takes us, right? So we're going to follow scripture and we're going to allow scripture to determine what we believe and what we say, uh, which puts us in some awkward conversations. But let's be upfront about it and just go where uh, scripture takes us. And uh, it's Revelation, so it's quite a ride even today. Also, let me, by way of introduction, tell you that uh, this passage, this long passage that we're going to look at, has one central idea that I want you to grasp onto, Right, So if you, if you hold on to this theme, this, this summary of, of the message, um, you'll do well. The main idea here is, and that you see in this vision, is that worldly devastation, think affliction, uh, even suffering, famine, but worldly devastation is a preview and a warning of God's coming judgment against wickedness. That's the summary. Hear it carefully. Worldly devastation of any kind is a preview and a warning of God's coming judgment against wickedness. And the wickedness that it is coming against is every form, right? The the wickedness of idolatry that is offensive to God or the the wickedness of persecution by which the devil uh, and the world is attacking his people. Today, As we step into Revelation 8-6 we see this new vision this next vision of seven angels who have seven trumpets. Now if you're been, if you've been with us through the book of Revelation, you've seen this. If Revelation is new to you, let me tell you, that number seven is big in the book. It comes up all the time seven, seven, seven. You, you can't get very far in Revelation without seeing seven as a prominent number with significant meaning. Uh, in the beginning, we have seven churches in Revelation chapter one through three, representing all of God's churches to whom Jesus is speaking. We have seven seals that Jesus had to open in the previous vision. Now we have seven trumpets. Later, there's going to be seven seven bowls that have to be poured out. There are seven lampstands that Jesus stands among. There are seven spirits, which represent the, the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. And when Jesus is depicted as the lamb that was slain, he has seven eyes and seven horns. Seven's big, it's important. And the reason it's so significant and the reason it's so frequently used is because the number seven represents completeness or perfection, and so in symbolic apocalyptic literature like Revelation, it makes sense. Okay, so we're gonna use the number seven to communicate this idea of wholeness and perfection. I mean, it goes all the way back to Genesis. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh complete, right? Mission accomplished. All was well, beautiful, and perfect. So here, again, seven. Seven angels with seven trumpets. Now, before we get any farther, again, lots of, lots of front-loading on this because I want us to be on the same page. Maybe the most important thing that you'll get out of the entire series that's taking us a year to do is to understand the overarching theme of the book. If you forget everything that I say, uh, but you can remember this summary of the theme of the entire book of Revelation, it will greatly help you in reading and applying what this book says. Hopefully, you know it by now if you've been with us for more than a month, but the theme of the book of Revelation Is the victory of Jesus and his church over the devil and the world? That's the theme. It runs through every chapter. The victory of Jesus and his church over the devil and the world. The devil and the world conspiring against Christ and his people ever since the beginning. And the reason that this themed uh, revelation was given to the church was specifically, right, the purpose of the book, was to encourage the church in the midst of tribulation and trouble. It's written, it's given this, like the whole book, but revelation in particular was given to encourage the church going through difficulty, suffering, and affliction, and all of these visions that we see, vision after vision after vision, the God sitting on the throne with the scroll in his right hand, the lamb showing up to un, un, uh, unwrap the scroll, all of these visions, all of them, are telling us the same three things over and over again, sometimes with a bit more information, but it's telling us the same information. And what each of these visions is telling us is what Jesus has already done, what Jesus is doing right now, And what Jesus is going to do in the end. That's what it is. Every vision hits those three things. What has Christ accomplished? What is he doing now? And what will he do in the very end? Now, today we're looking at these trumpets. And we're going to see it again. It's what is happening now in our day. Namely, worldly devastation is a preview and a warning of God's coming judgment against wickedness. In other words, these trumpet blasts are associated with God's judgment in dramatic ways. And in in fact, they're likened to plagues. So there will be some reflection or uh, remembering of the plagues in Egypt when God delivered Israel from their captivity. So as we're doing this, keep in mind This is given to the persecuted church who is crying out to God for relief, the afflicted church, and God is giving them and therefore us a perspective of what is happening today that we would not otherwise know. That's what Revelation does. It gives us a different perspective, a different understanding of what is happening now that we wouldn't know without it. And this this idea that this wrath is being manifested in associating with these trumpets, both giving us a preview of God's wrath and a warning of the coming wrath in the very end is based upon... Uh, chapter six, when the martyrs, those believers, followers of Jesus, who have been murdered by the devil and the world for their faith, are crying out from underneath the altar of incense in this vision. And they're crying out, Lord, when will you vindicate us? We've got the devil in the world like destroying us, cutting our heads off, tearing us apart. When will you stand up and bring an end to the madness? And God's response, if you remember, is my final answer is going to come in due time. But for now, there are more that have been set apart for martyrdom that have to come home. Until then, there will be a preview and a warning of the coming judgment, but you'll need to be patient until the very end. And so now we have this preview and warning of God's coming judgment. In other words, there's an end to this all of this when judgment is final, but there's something that we experience now. In fact, in the Baptist Catechism, Go all the way back. Baptist Catechism, question 89. Um, What does every sin deserve, is the question. Here's the answer. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. So every sin that we commit is worthy of God's wrath and judgment now and in the end. Now in part, now in small measure, but ultimately in the end. That's what we're talking about. So Seven trumpets. We're only going to get the six because the way the vision is laid out, we get six, then we get an interlude, and we're going to go off on that. We'll come back to the seventh trumpet later. So today, here we go. The first trumpet we read about in verses six and seven of chapter eight. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of all the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. This is the picture. Destruction, devastation. And it's, it's using this, this cosmological language, right, or, or phenomenological language. It's like this, it's like well, things that you can kind of relate to. Like, oh, well, there's hail, we get that, and, and fire, and it's bringing about some sort of, of devastation. So it's, it's pictures of natural phenomenon, especially if you understand the fire to be lightning, right? Which, wasn't, which isn't altogether out of keeping with the way scripture talks because actually this is somewhat reflective of the seventh plague uh, in Egypt. The seventh plague that came against Pharaoh and against Egypt uh, for not letting God's people go is hail and lightning. But what we have here is essentially a terrifying storm that is mixed with blood. Where's the blood coming from? How does that figure out? Well, the scripture actually here doesn't say, but a lot of scholars argue that the blood is actually the consequence of the storm itself. In other words, hail is falling like giant hail, like this is destructive kind of hail. It's a a terrible storm that is both, you know, creating fires. We've got lightning, we've got hail, and therefore blood is the consequence. Death is the result. Hail and fire and blood. It sounds like a a scary movie or a heavy metal song that I would love to listen to probably. Uh, Hail and fire and blood is a, a demonstration of God's judgment against sin. It's a terrifying storm depicted as a terrifying storm That is bringing pressure against ungodliness and wickedness. Now, it sounds devastating because it is. I mean, it's epic, but it's also mixed with mercy. And this is something that we're gonna see throughout all of this. That while God is giving a preview of his judgment and warning of the final judgment to come, it's only a third. It's only a third of the world that we see impacted by this, which is telling us that it's not complete, total destruction. The first angel blows this trumpet and what? It's a third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees, a third of the green green grass. It's not complete, total destruction. God is still merciful even in the context of bringing about judgment, temporal judgment in this world. So we see judgment and mercy here in the first trumpet of hail, fire, and blood. The second trumpet is blown in verses eight and nine. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This is a bizarre picture, and what people do, and here's a mistake that people do with Revelation, they go, okay, burning mountain, fun the ocean, ICBM. That's a nuclear bomb. That's what that is. And they look for one specific, always in their particular culture and context uh, and day, but they look for one specific way of interpreting and applying this bizarre picture. And they go, that's what that is. And then it cuts out every other application. When in reality, the picture is much bigger than a nuclear bomb. Now, we're out here in Illinois, man, so some of you maybe have never seen a mountain. Uh, hopefully you have. The first time I saw a mountain, I was a brand new Christian, uh, maybe maybe 19 years old, and I uh, went out to Colorado, never seen a mountain before, and I'm used to seeing nothing but sky, and then if I look down, I see corn. So there's corn, about eye level, and then it's all sky. But when I got to Colorado, we're up in the Rocky Mountains riding bikes through uh, Independence Pass and Vail and, and all of these, all these mountain passes. All I see is mountain. I mean, literally, it's... The mountains take up almost everything. You've got to look straight up almost to catch a glimpse of the sky. Mountains are huge, right? So imagine a huge mountain. Now imagine that mountain on fire. That's terrifying. That's what California has to deal with, right? It's terrifying. The mountain's on fire. Now imagine that mountain that's on fire lifted up and being thrown into the ocean. This, this is cataclysmic judgment, right? This is end of day stuff. Well, that's the picture. Real terrifying judgment and yet this burning mountain that's thrown into the sea isn't just one event it's a picture that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness on the land and here in the sea and it's not absolute destruction it's not destruction without restraint because it's only a third that are being impacted we're seeing that these acts of worldly devastation are actually in some way connected to, reflected, reflective of, and moved by God's judgment against wickedness. First trumpet, hail, fire, blood. Second trumpet, the burning mountain. Third trumpet is a falling star. Look at verses 10 and 11. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. Hold on to that. We're coming back to the fallen star later blazing like a torch. Now this falling star fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So here another picture, right? A picture that does not have like one specific contemporary application, I'll give you an example. It doesn't mean those sneaky Russians had a satellite that they put up and it fell onto our waters and gave, gave us all the, the heebie-jeebies. It, that's, it's not a satellite that's poisoning our water supply. It's not Russia. It's not China. It's, not, it's bigger than all of that. And it's something that's always true. Again, we're getting a different perspective on what happens now, what's been happening through, from between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And here is a picture of a star that has fallen. Now listen, a, a, stars don't f- a star can't fall onto the earth, right? Because you know what stars are? They're suns. <laughs> we would just be swallowed up into a, into a star. It's a picture. It, 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 you could think of it like, oh, it's kind of like a comet, right? That would be like a picture that you could put in your head. Oh, it's like a, uh, a meteor, really, is the, is the word, that would fall to the earth. You could see that sort of a thing happening. But even then, this is much bigger than that one idea. This fallen star, whatever, or whoever it is, has been sent to the earth and the waters are poisoned. Wormwood, it means bitter. It's a bitter herb. And if your water supply is contaminated with too much wormwood, you can get sick and people will start to die. The point seems to be here that bitterness is the consequence of our sin and the manifestation of God's judgment. It could be related to famine or it could be related more to the the bitterness and struggle of life in a world that no longer works because our sin has brought ruin to it. But either way, the famine, the pestilence, the poison, the bitterness in this world is here as a part of God's judgment. Here's the problem. Yeah, a, lot of us, a lot of us are afraid to say that because it feels a little icky and a little too hard. Um, and it, we, let me give you an example. Uh, Genesis, in the garden, God creates Adam and Eve. Everything is good, perfect, awesome husband, awesome wife. Uh, everything's in bounds, And God says, I've given you all the trees of the garden. Eat, eat, have your fill, enjoy it all. Enjoy my good gifts, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day they eat of that, you die. Every other tree is good. You can't eat of that particular tree. And so the way, and of course, Adam and Eve eat, bring sin and ruin into it. And so we say things like, okay, well, there is death in the world because we sinned, right? Death is the consequence, we say, of sin, which is true. But it's more true that death is God's curse against our sin. Because that's what he said. The day that you eat of it, you will die. And the curses come forth from God, In Genesis chapter three. So here we are, and we're seeing that these these cataclysmic events are a reflection of God's judgment or curse against wickedness. And then we have the fourth trumpet. And here we have the sun, the moon, and the stars are struck. All this happens in one verse, verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. That makes no sense. We can all agree on that, right? That does not make sense. Like, not phenomenologically. I mean, even if you were to say like, well, it just means a partial eclipse. Ooh, spooky, a partial eclipse. Not afraid. Uh, Even then, the partial eclipse doesn't bring terror and affliction, What it is is a picture of God's judgment that allows darkness to block out a portion of the light. I mean, you can think about it like this. The world is covered in a kind of darkness. And the only thing that can penetrate that darkness is the light of the gospel. The good news of Jesus, the light of God's word. Without this, it's all darkness. Now, that darkness is not just a consequence of sin. It's also a curse that has been earned. The sun, the moon, the stars, they're all struck. Nothing's going to work the way that it's supposed to. Again, it's using this cosmological language to give us a picture. Wow, the moon is supposed to lighten up the night. The sun is supposed to give us warmth and light, but they're not working properly. Now, it's not total destruction. It's not total chaos because it's only a third of the moon and a third of the sun. It's only a third of the light that's blocked out. But you get the idea. The darkness that exists upon the earth is there as an affliction aimed at the wicked idolaters and persecutors of the church. These are the first four trumpets that are sounded and the plagues that come with them. And then there's a a kind of a distinction that's made between the first four and the latter three. We're going to see that in verse 13. But just roll with me here for a second. We're seeing in this vision four trumpet blasts that reflect four acts of judgment that have been in play throughout this whole church age. They are a constant reminder that judgment is coming and they are aimed at the wicked to call them to repentance and to demonstrate the need for payment of sin. So we have these first four, they're sort of grouped together because look at what happens in verse 13. In verse 13 it says, then I looked and I heard an eagle. Already it's different, right? It's, oh yeah, first angel, second angel, third angel, fourth angel. Now it's, and I looked. So we've got a complete shift here that's happening. I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. So you think it's going to be that, or whatever an eagle's? I don't know what an eagle does. But it's doing that thing. That's not what it's doing. It's actually speaking. It's actually heralding something. It's actually calling out. I looked and I flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So, in other words, you've already seen the first four, it's about to get worse. It's about to get cranked up. Things, These trumpet blasts are kind of getting louder and, and more dramatic in a manifestation of God's judgment against evil. This is helpful to those, and here's a little preview of why it's helpful to us. This is helpful to the church who exists in the context of persecution and hardship because we're constantly wondering, what are you doing? Why do the bad guys get away with it? Why do the righteous be, are, why are they so afflicted? Why are you silent, what we're seeing is that God hasn't been silent at all. We're getting previews of his judgment every day across the world. So we have the four trumpets, this little interlude, and then the fifth trumpet. Now we're only gonna be able to look at the fifth and the sixth because then there is this interlude intermission, interruption kind of a thing that happens that we'll be looking at next week. But the fifth trumpet, and I'll tell you on the front end, here we're talking about demonic torment. It moves from out of the physical world that people experience you know circumstantially to the spiritual affliction that happens through the devil and his demons. so now look at uh, chapter nine. I mean here, once we get to these latter uh, trumpets, we get a lot more description here. In fact, to go through this let me uh, let me break it apart we 'll read it maybe. Mm, maybe maybe piece by piece. All right, so first we have this falling star in, in verse one. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. We need to stop right there. Falling star, we've already talked about that, right? Oh, wormwood and all of that. Now, there are a lot of scholars who would argue uh, across the board, really, of various views, that this is a reference to the devil, the fallen angel. And this is not a a stretch at all, because Scripture frequently talks about him as a fallen angel, falling, falling star. Uh, In fact, in, you know, Jesus, when he sends out his disciples to preach the gospel, and to cast out demons, in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20, they come back and they're like, Jesus, the demons, listen, it's crazy. We're doing all this stuff, and it's Actually working with his, and jesus response is not good on you jesus response is, "Yeah, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. So here we have this fallen star who is cast to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is really important because we're having this this execution of God's judgment in which he is allowing satanic forces to afflict the wicked in their idolatry. As a person who is a former idolater and literally involved in the occult, I experienced this firsthand where I went full on in onto the occult to see what I could get out of it as a teenager and I got everything that I wanted. And it's not lost on me at all that God was like, go ahead, have your fill, because once I did, everything began to fall apart and I was miserable, suicidal. I was at the end of myself until somebody took the time to tell me about Jesus. It's reaping what we sow in this context when we pursue idolatry as these satanic forces and beings begin to afflict us. Now, they don't afflict believers. We're specifically told here this is only those who don't have the seal of God on their forehead. And we've already seen this in a previous vision. There are those who have the seal of God on their forehead and those who don't. By the way, there are those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead and those who don't. Right? Now, this is not a microchip, okay? it's not a stamp or a tattoo. Ooh, tattoo. It's not even that. That's cool, but it's not that. It is the seal of God upon a person done by the Holy Spirit in other words it's it is a demarcation that you can't see outside of godliness okay it is an invisible mark upon God's people that signifies that we belong to him. Those people are not touched by these demonic forces. We might experience the blowback of catastrophic events in this world, but we have the assurance in this world that whenever there is a catastrophic event, as the believer, as the person who's been forgiven of our sins, none of that is intended for us as a punishment against our sins. It's a warning about judgment to come, but God's love is what moves him to act on our behalf. So here, the people of God are protected from this fifth trumpet. Uh, but the, the, the wicked are not protected. It is aimed at them. And so this fallen star releases these demons. The church is protected in verse 4. But the wicked are afflicted in verses five through six. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone, prolonged, sharp, and awful. he goes on to explain the appearance of these locusts, right? Uh, They were prepared for battle. uh, On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Oh, aha, Apache helicopters. Everybody likes to go like, these are obviously Apache helicopters or whatever the new helicopter is because, you know, things change. Uh, Again, we're not looking for a one-for-one 20th or 21st century interpretation of this picture, this dramatic, symbolic vision. This in particular, is a spiritual analogy. He's using the, the locusts because, well, that makes sense as an act of judgment, doesn't it? Because God has used locusts in the past. It was the eighth plague that Egypt experienced. And the response was, "We're still not repentant. We're still not letting anybody go." And then we've got the sixth trumpet, which is a continuation of this satanic affliction. We see it in verses 13 through 21. The sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Stop. The four horns of the golden altar. There are different altars in the temple or in the tabernacle that serve different purposes. We've already been talking about this particular altar. It's the altar of incense that represents the prayers of God's people ascending into heaven and in the previous visions we've seen that the martyrs who who have been murdered for their faith are underneath that altar crying out to God for justice. Which is what Is given rise to this particular response. But here we have the 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 sixth trumpet being sounded, and we're drawn back into this picture of the, the the these four horns, and there is a voice that comes out saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. To kill a third of mankind. That's rough. That's a hard word. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Their number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They were breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. The power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So get the picture. Here, we see that there is Satanic work behind all of the the warring that is happening, and now this may have uh, more application beyond physical, worldly, uh, military com- conflicts, and it might go well beyond that to the spiritual conflicts that we were looking at earlier. But either way, there is this war that is waged throughout the earth that that brings devastation to many, and even this, these conflicts are a demonstration of God's judgment against sin. Yes, it is us reaping what we sow as a fallen human race, but not as the people of God. Because what we see here, as the people of God in particular, is that worldly devastation, all of the worldly devastation that happens is a preview and a warning of God's coming judgment against evil and wickedness. The Christian will never be punished for his or her sins by God because Jesus has been punished for us. We may be disciplined for our sins when we are continuing to rebel against God and his call for faith and godliness. He brings a light momentary affliction upon us to make us miserable for a season so that we will again see the danger of our sins and return and walk in holiness. But that's, motive, that's move, move, moving out of love, not so much out of any desire to punish us. And so when we see these worldly devastations happening, there are a couple of things that should be up front for us as we're considering all of this, like four reasons why this is good and matters. Number one, we're gonna wrap it up with this. Number one, this reality, that what we can see now from this new perspective, that these afflictions, these devastations in the world are related to God's judgment against evil is good because it warns the world and the wicked. And there's grace and mercy in it because it's not absolute total destruction. There's still time to repent. There's still time to turn away from self and idolatry and evil and towards the God who forgives. It's also good because it is a partial punishment of sin, right? We want to see the righteous, vindicated, the innocent, uh, protected. We want God to do something. We think like he's sitting on his hands. He's not doing anything. I don't understand. I see bad people getting away with everything. But we do see in part, God does hold the wicked accountable and we see it in part in these worldly devastations. Number three, This perspective should encourage us because we know that even in these acts, God is giving us the grace to endure. He hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned us. In fact, He is protecting us. It doesn't mean that we won't die from from a bad circumstance. It doesn't mean that we can't experience hunger or even famine. But it means that God is never at odds with us pursuing our destruction. He is constantly pursuing our preservation so that we can thrive in these circumstances. He, in other words, God is moved out of a sense of love and delight for us to do good for us so that we, in the end, are more than conquerors with Jesus Christ. And finally, this encourages us to evangelize. This should encourage us to to tell as many people as we can to flee from the wrath of God. I know that's not our normal style of evangelizing these days. Um, You know, we like to do more of like the you know, like the old school guys are like, hey man, if you were to die tonight and have to stand before God, and God asked you, people don't care. Don't even bother. Most people, especially my generation longer, you've lost them. It's not even, uh, it's not even uh, the smallest of curiosities for most people. Uh, they used to work as a question, a diagnostic question. And maybe other people are like, we might approach it with like, hey, maybe are you struggling with fulfillment? Like, what's your purpose in life? You know, and we think like that might connect with people. But there's always a place to talk to our neighbors, the people that we care about who have not yet been reconciled to God to talk to them about the danger and the reality of sin, evil, their sin and their evil and the consequences for our sin and evil. In other words, there's always an opportunity to winsomely express to people that we must all flee from the wrath that we all deserve. And God has graciously given us a means by which we can be safe. These seven trumpets, we're only covering six, these trumpets show us what's happening now. What's happening now in all of the acts that are terrifying in the world. It is a reflection of God's hatred against sin. It's a reflection of the consequences of our own sinfulness, but it's also a demonstration that God will hold sinners accountable. And this should move us to humbly fear him. This should move us to fear the Lord. Not to be afraid, but to do more than what we normally mean by fear. When we say fear the Lord, we, we like to say, well, it doesn't mean to be afraid. It means to respect. And well, that's a part of it, for sure. It's respect, you know. And, but uh, I can show respect to the police officer who pulls me over. Never get a ticket. Can't say the same for my wife. Always gets a ticket. Anyways, I can show respect to the police officer who pulls me over because I don't want to get a ticket. But there's no sense of love and there's no real fear because what's he gonna do? Give me a ticket. Probably not, and I don't really care. To fear the Lord is respect. People would say, well, it's also awe. It's a sense of awe of his grandeur. That, it's that too. But there is an element of dread there. And it's not dread that God will destroy you. It's not, it's not that God would destroy you. But it is that God could justly destroy you. He won't because we're reconciled. He loves us. Nothing can separate us from his love. But he could justly destroy us. That is reflected in fearing the Lord and seeing how he interacts with sin, even on this grand global scale, produces within us humility that fears him. I know it's a hard word. It's not a feel-good Sunday message to get you pumped to go out for lunch with your friends. But it is what we need to have a better understanding of what's happening in this world. No, not everybody who dies because of an accident or a famine is directly being punished for their sins. But devastation is a picture of God's judgment against the wicked. We see it. We see it in Revelation. Now we can make sense of it when we see it in the world and it should move us to hold fast to our savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue to teach us beyond this time, beyond our, our, our teaching time, our worship time. Lord, that, that you would help us to see your word as, as that which gives life, opens up our mind to understand. But then, Lord, grant us wisdom to know how to live well for your glory and even for the good of those around us. Lord, help us to be people who take seriously the events that are happening in our day. We want to see the wicked held accountable for what they've done. But Lord, as, as wicked people ourselves, we also want to see the wicked forgiven. So we pray, Lord, that before your final day of judgment comes, that we would see many saved, that we would see many repent, lives changed. And even in that, we know that your justice stands for Christ, takes all of that wrath for all who believe. In Christ's name, amen.